Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week, I'm your host, Charles Maxwood. I don't know where everybody else is, but they're not here. Um, we're here with uh, Jimmy Couple. Uh, Jimmy, do you want to introduce yourself, let people know who you are, why you're yeah. world famous and all that good stuff? Uh, y- yes, Charles, it's going to be a pleasure. That's a... Uh, so... Yeah, so I, I'm Jimmy. My entire life is motivated by trying to get the world to spend less on software maintenance. So I'm kind of known for two big thrusts. I have a PhD from MIT in programming languages, specifically in the field of what I call meta-meta-programming, which is it's kind of a pretentious name, but it's a lot cooler than software language engineering, which is another name for right. the same thing. Which is So meta-programming, as Rubius should be well aware, is about uh, programs that generate code, edit programs, and broadly, it's being its programming tools. And I noticed and there are a lot of really awesome tools that people in academia have developed that you can't really use, even though they're so cool and they have studies showing it makes you so much faster. And I think it's, it's because they're really hard to build and you build it with a lot of work and you get it for some special use case. So my PhD largely focused on... Uh, well, programs that generate pieces of tools. So, mm. hence okay. meta meta programming. I'm, I'm also the founder of Mirden. Uh, Mirden is the code quality company. We take good software engineers and turn them into great software engineers. We've uh, so our main thing is the web course, the ad software design course, where we teach software engineers a lot of really advanced techniques that most are very broadly applicable to all kinds of languages, mm. but most people have no familiarity with. And teach people how to make code, which is easy to modify and hard to make mistakes in. So I've gotten a lot of rave reviews from that. People saying that it's made pretty more enjoyable because they feel like you're kind of on top of the world and see what's going on. I've trained about 300 people so far. Now, as far as a world famous, I know you kind of jest with that, but I actually do have a little bit of a world claim to fame that's outside of programming, uh, which is about three years ago now. And so three years ago, we were in the midst of the 2020 elections. And you might have heard about some uh, drama around a couple of voting apps. So first, there was Shadow, used to run the Iowa caucuses, and it made the results a week later come out. And then after that, there was Votes, which is an actual mobile voting app, being mm-hmm. supposedly blockchain-based. Hmm? I've used Votes. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, votes was not used in the federal election in 2020. It was not used by the state of West Virginia because of myself and my co-author, uh, Mike Spector, where we found numerous security vulnerabilities in it, which was, and got them published in the New York Times and a bunch of other places around the world. That's actually how <laughs> nice. I got my Chinese name. My Chinese name is uh, based on the characters that a Taiwanese newspaper used for me when re- reporting the story. So that is my world claim to fame. That's cool. Yeah, I've used votes. I'm a, a delegate here in Utah. And uh, so we've used it for some party business and stuff like that to vote in leadership and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, very interesting. So, um, yeah, well, we brought you on. I think you, uh, I don't know if we, we reached out to you about this or if you proposed it, but uh, linguistic anti-patterns. And um, I find the idea really fascinating. Do you want to kind of uh, start us off just talking about 
what you know how you define it and how to identify them and maybe the problems they cause sure so so loose anti-pattern well if if you want to be kind of you want to be kind of crude you can say it's a fancy word for bad naming but simply mm-hmm. it's specific ways of bad naming and that's you can, you can train yourself to identify and avoid and then and then predict the consequences. So, so, so we have uh, numerous examples of these, some which have been very bad. So there are some basic things such as um, like apparently there is quite a few methods in Java that have are named like getters. Like mm-hmm. I'm looking at one right now. It's called get method bodies, but it doesn't return anything. It's it's void. So that causes a little okay. bit of confusion. Yeah. Uh, but it gets worse from there. So my favorite example is... Uh, so this one this happened within a major software company where probably most people listening have used their product quite a few times. Uh, but I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to name the company. And I'm not going to name the... I'm not going to give the name the internal framework. I'll just call it Odrin, which is our fake name for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a function called create async request in this framework uh-huh. you create, call create async request you get a thing and then you call then you invoke it and you expect right. that it's an async request and that expectation is so reasonable that one of my former students spent a full week trying to debug this and they showed it to the creators of this framework and they can figure it out either because create, no. create async request does not create an async request. Creates an async request template that must be instantiated. Mm-hmm. So because the expectation of what this does is so strong, and because there's not the kind of compile time error, runtime error feedback to tell you exactly why you're using it incorrectly, this thing that's easy to read, and I'm, like you would, you would just read this and say it's correct, I I can definitely see where that would be an issue. Um and yeah, I mean I would expect it yeah to make an async request, right? Not give me a template back then I have to instantiate and work on. So did the framework change it? I did not hear the rest of the story and <laughs> it's not it's not at all open source, so it's not like okay, I can just look it up. Okay. My guess is probably not because giant company backwards compatibility. Right. Makes sense. So, uh, I mean, just diving into this a little bit, um, I've run into issues, right, where I wrote almost all the code. I named crap poorly, right? And then I went back and I used something making the assumption that it did what I called it. And yeah, it's, you know, it's it's not a unique problem to bigger systems or bigger teams or anything like that. This is something Absolutely. that everybody kind of falls into. So yeah, yes. so how do you avoid how do how do you uh, how do you identify it? Do you just identify it when people bring stuff up like this, or is there a less painful way to do that? Yes, yeah, so the number of things you can use. So on um, so one 
see. So, oh, I know there are a number of static type approaches for Ruby right now. I'm not sure how widely adopted they are. Uh, mm-hmm. But heavier static typing can definitely help a lot. And, and that's actually a pretty general thing. So, which is, this is part of the more general idea of trying to notice when some API can be confused for some for something else. Uh, so, for instance, let me teach is that if you see, if in a type language you see a function that takes in three integers in a row, you should mm-hmm. get nervous because that's just inviting people to pass in integers in the wrong order. Right. And I have a story from four, a bit over four years ago. Spent uh, 10, 20 hours debugging something that was caused by such an error. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so, that, that sounds interesting. So the big thing to note about confusability in general, beyond just confusability that comes from linguistic anti-patterns, is to think not just what might you use it for, but what will happen if you have the wrong expectation. Mm-hmm. So for instance, suppose you have a stack and you can never remember which is push and which is pop. You get them mixed up. Mm-hmm. Well, even if you get them backwards, you're going to find out very quickly you got them backwards because they work totally differently. Right. But for something that does sends, makes a background request or like has some effects, whereas something with concurrency where you usually don't want your program to be overly dependent on how stuff's being scheduled, those are the kind of thing where it gets dangerous and you should take more care to specifically design things in a way where a mistake in using it is going to cause a compiler runtime error. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I I just want to back up for a second, you mentioned that helps is, uh, you know, strong typing, but in Ruby, I mean, we're on a Ruby podcast, we don't have that. So is there a way around that? We we oh, yeah. can go into something that takes the arguments in a second because I'd like to talk about that too. But yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, so like heavier use of keyword arguments, for instance, that could stop prevents things from being confused in a different way. Uh, right. And also a little more interesting is avoiding avoiding using the same names in different objects. So. Mm-hmm. What wait, what do you mean by that? Using the same name so, in objects. Uh, this is not, you know, the spec example, but the first one comes to mind. So say you have a user and it has a dot ID. And then you have mm-hmm. a task and it has a dot ID. Like so, sure. Well, you know, that that is inviting you to someone to pass in a task when you're expecting a user and you call dot ID. And then you're using a user ID in place of a task ID. Right. Maybe, and I'm not sure what that one is, but a lot of others like that. It's like using the same name, different object means a difference. But now if that was adding mm-hmm. typing, you could confuse them. So right. you can intentionally try to make names more distinct. Like you can say user.uid or task.tid instead. Now that's one source of error gone. Right. That makes sense. Um going back to the idea of the the arguments right and since ruby doesn't have the strong typing i mean you can pass basically anything into any argument and as long as it matches the um 
the call signature right has two arguments or three arguments uh-huh. or ten arguments. It'll at least call it, right? I mean, it may error out further down the line, but it it will call it. Um, and you mentioned the keyword arguments. That's something that I use pretty heavily. If it just takes one argument, I may or may not use keyword arguments. Two arguments, I may or may not. But once I get to three, I'm looking for ways to start using keyword arguments because, yeah, I can't keep it straight, right? Even if it seems obvious, a lot of times I'll come back later and and go, I thought this order was obvious, but it clearly isn't. <laughs> That's right. Uh, another thing can be done. So, set a general rule about avoiding Boolean arguments, because you know, as at least Boolean non-keyword arguments, because mm-hmm. you know, if I call foo true, it's like you might have no idea what that means. And there are lots of cases where it's like, example I have is uh, in Java, you can call task.await. Mm-hmm. And then you pass a Boolean that tells it whether it can, this awaiting can be interrupted. But based on what I've told you, you probably don't know if true means interruptible or uninterruptible. Right. So solution is every language has some way of doing something like enums. Mm-hmm. So it have an enum called interruptible, an enum called uninterruptible. Now you're not confused those. And further, if you just read a, some piece of code that passes in true, um, then when you set a cap passing uninterruptible, now you don't, you don't need to look at the docs. You just know what that means. Some some of the things we're talking about are, um, I, I recently was reading clean code, and a lot, of, a, a lot of these ideas are in there. Not all of them, but you know, yeah, several yeah. of them are, right? But... Um, a lot of times, too, I run into issues, just as an example, um, the the documentation for the APIs that I've been working on for my client aren't always great, right? As far as like knowing what I can pass in or how to pass it in or how to format what I'm passing in and things like that. And so I see that at kind of a higher level when we're talking about arguments that come in where, yeah, you're not quite sure what the convention is for that or what they did in this particular edge case to allow you to do something that's a little bit outside the normal CRUD operations. So for example, they, they do logistics, right? So mm-hmm. it's you order a thing and you want it to show up at your house, right? And so they they do everything from inventory, warehouse, stuff like that, right? And so you know, you've got your normal operations like you have an order, right? And you... Um, there are a lot of different ways to change the state of an order. And some of it's just data that lives on the order object or in the database on the orders, orders table. And so, you know, changing that's an update operation, right? If I mm-hmm. want to delete the order, I can call the delete on the on the API. But if I want to do change the state of it to canceled or shipped or things like that, a lot of times the documentation isn't clear on how to do that. Because it's not your standard update to the system, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, you know, if the order is a state machine. Then there's, like, changing the fields, there's changing the state. You expect right. this changing the states to affect a lot more things. And it would make sense for yep. it to have a different API for doing so. Yeah, and sometimes that's not entirely clear because they don't expect you to pass a set of changes you know, to the to the data that's in the table or 
things like that. And so it's okay. So what do I pass? You know, do you need the ID? Do you need the ID and some other piece of data? Do you need the order number? You know, I'm working on integration. So do you need the original ID from the integration that created it? Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm hearing that uh, there's, that's the signature or documentation of this function is not particularly crisp. And also possibly mm-hmm. hearing the mismatch between how the API design and how it works conceptually as far as like, which makes it not obvious where to find the various updaters you right. need for different kinds of updates. Yeah. And, you know, the reason I'm bringing it up is because we were talking about the way that the functions go together and the way that the arguments are named or the keywords are provided, um, you know, the formats that those things can be in. And it just occurred to me that it doesn't have to be within my code. It could be, as I call out to services, we have some of these same problems. As we dive into this, I'm a little curious, are there other kinds of um, linguistic uh, anti-patterns that you find pretty commonly? Or maybe you can give us an example of somewhere where this happens within the Ruby ecosystem. Yeah, so it's a, uh, yeah. So I was actually just hunting through my list of examples uh, an hour or two ago, hoping to find one in Ruby that I already had prepared. But uh, I lasted not. There was one that I remembered as being in Ruby, but actually was in Python. Okay. Although Spossil's Ruby library, the same one. That's which that story is about how, well, in PyAML, there's a function called danger load. That makes you think that normal load is safe, but it's not. <laughs> so what's what's the difference? Okay, so YAML, you might have heard some of the uh, some of the rage against YAML. Which looks it looks great, it's beautiful, readable, but it's actually mm-hmm. terribly and gnarly. There's an amazing and hilarious website called noyaml.com that features some of these. But I don't think that even talks about these security vulnerabilities, which is uh, so perhaps I think it's like a full decade ago now, the infamous Ruby YAML parsing bug, where you can have a YAML file, so you call like yaml.load. Uh-huh. Uh, it is going to construct Ruby object. That mm-hmm. is, you can annotate your YAML, so that's going to construct a Ruby object. And the person from the YAML file picks which objects. Uh, so, if there is enough stuff imported, then they can basically do whatever they want to your system just by when you call YAML.load. So that is super dangerous. Uh, so, so, in my quick skim right now, I'll have this article pulled up. I'm not quickly finding the difference between danger load and load, but the safe behavior in question is to not run arbitrary code. Right. So the safe version being, yeah, don't run arbitrary code. Does that how is the, how is that not safe then? I mean, what what other that that is safe version. The thing is, okay, that's. Uh, YAML.load load does, not, uh, does not do that. I gotcha. Yeah, I seem to remember there being, um, oh, I can't remember the, the term, but 
yeah, they found a vulnerability in, in Rails that was related to what you're talking about, or Ruby was related to that YAML. Uh, they had, there was some kind of remote code execution that, yeah, people could run on your Ruby apps or Rails apps. That's always fun. Yeah. And it was related to that CVE. But that was a few years ago. It's, it's still, it's like the original really frightening YAML parsing bug was hell. I don't remember what year it was, but I remember that Heartbleed was 2014. Mm-hmm. And when Heartbleed came out, people were talking about the importance of having a really catchy name for your vulnerability. Because the Ruby <laughs> YAML parsing bug was old news at that point, and right. was as or more dangerous than Heartbleed, but didn't have such a catchy name. So, putting it like at least a decade old, and uh, I guess we're still getting YAML vulnerabilities, so the root cause was not fixed. Interesting. So, I mean, what are we supposed to do? Because there are all kinds of Ruby apps that use YAML to configure them. So, and that is a big question, and there's always backwards compatibility. Backwards compatibility is the thing that gets in the way. That's a, uh, so, I'm going to talk about a related API design error. That I believe now is fixed in the process to get there. And then, so as I'm talking, should, should, should uh, provide a lot of idea for what the YAML solution should be. So, have you ever heard of the, the curl opt SSL verify host bug? Uh huh. So, this thing came out only, actually, I think over a decade ago. So I talked earlier about the danger of Boolean parameters. Well, in C, you can have things that look like Boolean parameters that aren't, because Booleans are just integers. So, that's a... So you're connecting to a server, and so what do you want to happen? Uh, You want to make sure when you're talking to Google.com, it's actually Google.com, and not a guy and parked in front of your house with a router it's a and broadcasting signal pretending to be google.com which mm-hmm. uh but which by the way uh the, the former head of site integrity at facebook got hacked by his own employees by doing exactly that <laughs> no way uh yeah um well he asked he asked when I heard the story a dozen years ago, I was asked not to give the full details, but a lot of the details are published in TechCrunch. When it's been long enough, I think I can say, and uh, the employees who did it, they they left their car outside his house for months with a boat battery powering their machine, and then they rollerbladed to work. That's a... Uh, so anyway, so that's, a man, that's an example of a man-in-the-middle attack. They can be scary. So that's why I'm mean, certificates and HTTPS and uh, TLS SSL. You know, it's like the server has a private key and so that's which is signed by some certificate authority and like only the guy with the private key can give evidence he's actually in that website. Uh-huh. So when you're using curl as a library, you have some apps doing SSL connection. You want to check those certificates. And so uh, you should go ahead and uh, pass 
you see this curl opt SSL verify host flag. And yes, uh-huh. you want to verify the host. You want to check certificates. See that it's true. Right. If you do that, it actually disables the certificate checking. You shouldn't pass in true. You should pass in two. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so there's a great paper from like 10 or 15 years ago called The Most Dangerous Code in the World. Which uh-huh. uh, they went through a bunch of applications. Yeah, two, I kind of found it. Uh, 2012. They went. They found these man-in-middle vulnerabilities in a lot of different applications because of this API design flaw. So, so you can say it's in a similar situation uh, as with YAML. So, so here's how the documentation for curl opt SSL verify host reads today. If verify value is set to one, i.e. true, in 7.280 and earlier, treat it as a debug option. That is, so they patched the old versions to kind of ig- ignore that. From seven point eight, from seven point two eight point one to seven point six five point three, setting it to one made curl easy setups return an error and leaves flag untouched. From seven point six six zero onwards, treat one and two the same. So the upshot of the story is basically patch old versions, patch old versions to kind of give a notification when they're doing that. Have a long period of giving an error in doing that, and then a longer period of kind of deprecating it. So it'd probably be a similar story of like you release patches through all the old versions, saying like um, no n- n- no loading objects to execute arbitrary code unless you specifically call a special method called like, danger load, and then it's uh. Actually, I think that kind of be in this story, and like, perhaps you eventually remove that feature altogether. Whatever, whatever it is, the big things like, I'm sure there are lots of uses for people uh, loading arbitrary Ruby objects and coding YAML using this feature, mm-hmm. but you should never have it happen unless you really want it to. Makes sense. Now you sent over a couple of case studies. Um, do, do these tie into this idea too? Where we're talking about like the bundler case study or the Rubicop case study, um, yeah, but, but, but broadly, so as this as this story on these case studies is that, um, let's see, uh, one of my early students, a guy named Gabriel, and he once really wanted to take my course, but he was in Brazil, and he uh-huh. and uh, well, Brazil's not. Just not doing well economically for a long time. And back then, the Royale had just followed a lot with the dollar. You know, I said, you know, it's like, I think you're a really bright guy. And how about I'll give you a huge discount on the course, but then you write two case studies. And, and he did. And so that's where these two Ruby case studies I have came out. So, okay. so these are about either messy code or code flaws in two uh, popular Ruby programs in Rubicop and in Bundler. And so the Bundler one is interesting that this is kind of a story about how a real security vulnerability happened, which is uh, a handful of years ago, 
it's very easy to accidentally. It's very easy to accidentally. So like you have a bundler file, and mm -hmm. you say, "Here's my primary source. Download all the gems from here." But for this one gem, download from place B. Right. But actually, it would give place B precedence over place A. And this makes you vulnerable to what's called a supply chain attack, where someone right. uploads to place B, a library has the same name as the thing you actually wants, but it uh, doesn't do what you like. Right. So, so in, in other communities, there have been some very infamous cases of uh, the of this kind of supply chain attack. So, trying to remember the name of the library, uh, I believe this was in JavaScript in, in the Node world, where and so the attack was someone got administrative access. You know, he took on this one project, small project from someone else, didn't want it to be anymore, made some good contributions, mm -hmm. then once he had control, he changed one of the de minified dependencies of that program. So, uh, in order to add some obfuscated code, which, so we have a minified dependency in this library, it's being used in Electron, which is being used in some cryptocurrency wallet. It's uh -huh. like three layers of dependencies. And I would detect it was running in that, in that, and with that program, and the person had at least 100 Bitcoin, then it would drain their account. So, so that's a supply chain attack. But this, this error in bundler, which you can call it a bug, you can call it unexpected behavior. There's a saying, a program without a specification cannot be wrong, it can only be surprising. I think, so I think this was ill-specified enough to be just be surprising. But anyway, it's, would make, I don't know how much it's exploited, but it definitely made these kind of supply chain attacks quite easy. And and it, uh, from looking at the code, it turned out this actually was in almost certainly not what the creator's intended behavior to be. It's like you think, like you, you specify one dependency with a secondary source, you think that should only apply that one dependency. Uh, but because the way the code right. was engineered, as far as not having explicit, a, a well-structured reputation of these sources, say, instead you have this kind of lower level primitives used to represent them, global data structures. So it's just like, oh, we're going to prioritize the most recent source that was specified, mm -hmm. which happens to never be the global source statements you put at the top of the file. I, I seem to remember um, the particular issue with the NPM package. And I think we talked about it on JavaScript Jabber. Um, and yeah, there, there have been a few instances where stuff like that's happened. Some of it is fairly, you know, it's not as malicious, right? Where somebody just deleted their NPM library and a bunch of people depended on it. And so it was bad. Yeah, but it was wasn't, it wasn't like it wasn't fatal, right? It was just um, I, I'm thinking of left pad when I say that, right? And so they yeah the 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 package got deleted, people couldn't build, so npm actually put it back. Um, was the solution that they came up with? Um, but yeah, there have been a few times where yeah, there's been a library that the maintainer 
didn't want to maintain it anymore. They handed it off. Um, and yeah, somebody took it over and put, put malicious code in it. And then, yeah, they got access to stuff that you didn't want them to have access to. I mean, and again, you know, how do you mitigate that? How do you, how do you stay on top of that kind of a thing? I don't have a good answer to that's a system wide problem and not really, not, not really something that in an individual team, unless you're a megacorp can really handle. Mm -hmm. So, so like in some of my own projects, things for clients, I've tried to like putting a practice of, of being careful adding dependencies or every upgrade. Like we put notes saying this thing is this, we need it for this reason. I look at the code, it seems fine. But if you really commit to that, of like really checking, of really checking every dependency, um, then like either either you can't do it, and you have to you have to kind of mm, half half bake it in a way you would still be vulnerable to the uh, electron big point attack I mentioned earlier. Like three layers of dependencies mm -hmm. in an obfuscated code, minified file. Good luck. Right. It's like, or you do that, so we say, I, I never upgrade, or you just don't <laughs> use dependencies, and then you're, lo and behold, right. despite your high and mighty ideals, you still find yourself working several times slower as everyone else. Right. And, but something I'm surprised I haven't seen more momentum is that, and, like, I think there should be community organized or group corporate organized auditing of common libraries. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like I want to be able to say, like, here is 500 of the most common node repackages, and and an industry consortium hired some people to do like a basic level one cursory audit that's not malicious code, and then basic checks of them their transit dependencies for every version, because like I think there's enough people who are going to be concerned about these supply chain attacks. That's like this coordination problem. Of like, surely we can find you know, group funds such an effort. Yeah. Um, one thing that I know we've talked about again on JavaScript Jabber, we had uh, Faraz Bukadije, and he yeah. got on and he talked about some of these supply chain issues and a tool he's working on called Socket that does it for NPM packages. Um, I don't know of anything that does this same kind of thing, though, for Ruby packages. And effectively, I mean, you mentioned it was like this obfuscated, encrypted, executable segment of the the code, right? And so you can't you can't see into it, but it does stuff. Um, and, and he talked about, you know, essentially his tool scans for that, among other things. And that that's what kind of drew my mind to it. But yeah, um, it, it'd be really interesting to have a tool like that that's, yeah, running those community scans and saying, hey, this has these red flags to it, right? Yeah. Um, then it's, it's a little small world aside. I was I was an intern with Frost uh, at Facebook 12 years ago. Oh, okay. So he, was he, was, he was around for the man in the middle fishing story that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he attended the session where the story was told, but he, but he was there. He's also currently married to 
through a friend of mine, someone that I was in the, the ETL fellowship with. Okay. Uh, uh, so, so this thing, it's a, I don't, I don't know a good way to uh, import this into the Ruby world, but this is the kind of thing that a good type stem or capability system will do. Actually, you might be able to put a capability system into Ruby. So capability system means something like there is, instead of being able to say file.open anywhere you want, instead uh-huh. there's a file system object that gets passed around with constructor to constructor, method to method. And this file system object has the open function. So if you have a section of code and you don't pass the file system object to that code, it cannot touch the file system. Or maybe you pass in your restricted version of that object with restricted permissions. With that kind of control of effects and capabilities, then like, you don't have things where like you import a, str- a string formatting library and then it's, um, it, you know, it, it logs your keyboard and sends data to the server. Because like, why would a string formatting library need keyboard and network access? You just don't give it that. Right. Yep. I, I think we've kind of uh, deviated a little bit from the case study, which basically just said that you could be pulling from a source you don't necessarily trust or get code that you don't necessarily want. Um, I'm, I'm curious then, I mean, are there ways to mitigate that particular deal, right? Can you tell it which server to pull from for a particular gem or... I mean, I kind of scanned the case study a little bit and it said that it, in your gem file, it'll, I guess it was at one point, if it's not anymore, honoring the last entry. So yeah, can you go in and say, well, use the the first entry on these or, you know, these are the exceptions, use this particular, you know, gem repository. So... I'm not sure about now, but at, at the time the bug was for supported, like there was syntax for doing that, but it didn't, mm-hmm. like, it didn't actually do that. Like you would say, all right, so here I've pulled up the page with the, explaining the security flaw. So you could write source private.com do, and then in the do block, you mm-hmm. declare your gems. And so you okay. would think that would scope, you would think that would scope this secondary source just within that do block but it didn't right oh, really? so so with such an uh wrong behavior being provided by the library we talk about solutions on a- a- any solution any solution that's given to the end user is going to be workarounds around this bad behavior which i believe the workaround right. was just every single gem that you import you explicitly say which one that particular one comes from. Uh, so when you talk about real solutions, it has to be a solution within the bundler code base. And right. So so here, a deeper cause of this problem was in the software design flaw as far as uh, not having, not baking the concepts of of gems and sources explicitly into the code. I mean, most of the time, if I have something that's not on Ruby gems that I want, um, it's in a GitHub repo somewhere that I have access to. But sure. it does occur 
when you're using something like uh, Sidekick Enterprise or, you know, some of the other gems out there that have a paid option, right? They have their own gem repository that, you know, you're, you're going to pull your libraries from. And so in those cases, yeah, if they've got a gem that's named something different or, or named the same as something that's in Ruby gems, I could see it confusing the two and pulling the wrong thing. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so the thing about this uh, about this error is that most of the time it's benign, ex- except when it's malicious, which is a reason mm-hmm. that it went under the radar for so long. Right. That usually it will be like it looks at the first repository, which is the first repository in the precedence list, which is whatever the last thing the file was. Right. And it's not there, and then it goes to the next thing, which is say the global repository, and everything's happy, and you never notice anything's wrong, until someone maliciously adds such a gem to the secondary repository. And so, if your secondary yeah. repository is, you, most of the time they're trusted uh, sources, right? But yeah, if you're if you're pulling them from some other source that has something that yeah, for whatever reason you want something different from what's on Ruby Gems. I, I could conceivably see that. Yeah. It see, also but seems, I, though, that um, this is something you should just do sparingly, and then it's not an issue. Oh. Yeah, that, that might that might be great advice for a lot of people. Then, you know, probably some listeners here are in a case where they need a ton right. of special gems or paid proprietary gems. And then, so... Yeah. And then your advice, it's like, you know, it might feel like someone in 1990 telling people to not use open source or not use dependencies <laughs> at all. Fair enough. Uh, so, so to flesh out a bit what I was saying earlier about gems and sources not being reps in the code well. So I have open, I have open right now the source code for this first version of Bundler. And it has a source list class, but it does not have a source class. I believe sources are just strings or just just URLs. Uh-huh. But yeah, I definitely see the issue there. Um, before we run out of time, I did want to talk about the Rubocop uh, sure. case study as well. Do you want to just kind of explain what that is and how it worked? Yeah, so R- Rubocop is a linter for Ruby, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, we find sim- simple buggy patterns as well as uh, bad idioms or bad style. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the flaws that Gabrielle found in Rubicop and put this case study were less dramatic. It's which is it's more more about how when you're invoking it programmatically, like there is a lot of ways to mess up. So. So, for instance, like um, there's a ton of options, and um, some of the options are only legal to sets if another one is also set. And then, so within the Rubocop code, they have yeah, they have a, they have a pretty messy function, which. Uh, Which tests whether there's legal combination arguments. So, 
So uh-huh. see here, the consequence is not major security vulnerability, supply chain attack possibility. It's just right. uh, some, some messy code with Rubicop and some potential potential for bugs, but probably ones probably ones that will just give you an error and not make it to production on the user side. But right, but the. Uh, you know, just because it doesn't, just because it uh, doesn't stop your house from burning down, doesn't mean that's you know having keeping a clean house is useless. Yeah. So, so here the problem is more of like the the way that they they take options, just a bunch of independent things, primitive types, as opposed to like creating a proper DSL or proper object hierarchy where it makes it easy to write down the options you want and hard for ops to write down invalid options. Okay. Yeah, I mean, RuboCop's something that I use. Um, and looking at the case study, I mean, I see stuff for the um, for the command line options. But and and is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about the configuration file? Yeah, actually, yeah. I think I think what I was saying refers to both the command line and programmatic options. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I see is that yeah, there are a number of places it can pull the Ruby version from, which may make it hard for you to identify which Ruby version it's supposed to use. That's a problem that's generally true of a lot of Ruby systems is that you know you can have you can have your ruby version listed in your bundle file you can have your ruby version listed in a ruby version file um you can have it listed in like a dot rvmrc or a dot ruby dot or what is it dot ruby dash version or something like that i can't remember but there are a whole bunch of different places you can put it and depending on the kind of they don't always follow necessarily the same order in looking them up. And so you could have one tool running one Ruby version and then another tool running another because you haven't universally updated all of your options to the same version of Ruby, right? Because you deploy to say Heroku and it runs one version of Ruby. And then, um, and so then you need the compatibility. So you change it, right? And then you run your local tools and it pulls it out of the, you know, dot Ruby dash version. Yeah, I can, I can kind of see that. So it's like each one of these tools wants to be king of the world and to like own your Ruby configuration. And then none of them do. Very interesting. But yeah, they have, they have a million different command line configs that you can set up. And then, yeah. Um, only can can't have a specific cop. The except can't can't have the top level cop that checks syntax. Yeah, yeah. I definitely see where where a lot of this comes from. Dash dash cache is a boolean, and and you also run into this in your code when we were talking about arguments and stuff. Is you mentioned you know sending an argument that's true, but 
Ruby evaluates different values to truthy or falsy. So you could pass in any number of things and, you know, get interesting results. It's really yeah. interesting just to think about how, how we overload a lot of this stuff. So the story you just said about being able to pass in any truthy thing actually reminds me of a very dramatic story I had 13 years ago that caused my break with dynamic typing. Because right now, I think a lot of people would associate me with, with heavy with static typing. Like I'm, I'm a big Haskell guy. So I was even mm-hmm. on the program committee of the Haskell Symposium last year. It's a, uh, you know, I teach a lot of people in other languages, like Java and Python and, and Ruby, about how they can use their type system to, in a way more advanced way than they than they knew about. Even like Ruby and Python, that's let's say I teach them I can get some benefits of type systems. Like we talked to earlier with the with the name thing, but you know, but I actually kind of grew up as a Ruby enclosure person. It's a big dynamic typing guy. It's a and I, and I, I still. I still actually do do some Ruby. It's like it's my tool of choice when I that's a when something gets too complicated for a bash script. Actually, mm-hmm. I once upon a time I picked up a book on Z shell, thinking I'd get really good at shell scripting, and about halfway through, I put it down and realized, kept reading, I'd become a worse person. That's a beneficial that I don't know too much advanced shell because then I can't use it. <laughs> uh, so the story about my break with with dynamic typing comes from when I was doing closure in 2009. And so I was working on an app that lets you play any card game with anyone else on the internet. So it's not about the app wasn't programming rules for card games, it's programming in card physics. That is, you can pick up cards, put down cards within your hands, you can put down a card and flip it face up at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's in that feature where on my computer, I go to put down a card, flip face. I put down a. I have a card in my hand, face down. I put it down on the table, face down. On your computer, it puts it down, face up. And what happened? So you go and like I see, it like is the flip over flag set. It says false. My computer, it stays face down. On your computer, it says false and it flips. And I'm debugging this, like and printing out, it says false, but enters the true branch. And it right. took me multiple days of like ripping the code base inside out to figure out what's going on, which was that false was not a false with it's not a boolean with, with a lowercase b. It was a boolean with a capital B. Mm. And that's in Java in Java and therefore every JVM language, including Clojure, they have these box primitives. So <laughs> so when I send the false over the wire, it gets sent as a lowercase b boolean, gets read in as a capital B boolean, and false as a box boolean is its truly value. Oh. I realized that was that was an error that could not happen in a static type language. And so that was a moment when I uh-huh. big shift away from the dynamically typed languages happened. Very cool. <laughs> I don't know if I would have ever found it. <laughs> Cool. Well, um, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time, so I'm going to push us into the self-promotion arena. Is there something you want to talk about that you've been working on lately that people should know about or sure. ways people so, can hire you? Sure. So there's in the small and the large. Uh, so first, uh, check out the linguistic anti-patterns that I've been talking about. 
So if you go to linguistic-antipatterns.com, spelled like it sounds like, there you'll find our webpage at the, where we have these listed examples explained and can go on to the associated GitHub repository and share new examples in a discussion forum or propose new we'll propose new ideas for anti-patterns as we're building up this community resource. As mentioned earlier, my life nowadays is all about teaching developers how to write better code. So you're good developers integrate. So, mm-hmm. so if you go to mirdin.com slash courses, that's M-I-R-D-I-N.com slash courses, and find all about our offerings. That's, uh, we, have, uh, we have our express course, about an hour a week, an hour or two a week for several weeks, starting in January 23rd. And then a few weeks later, we have our our full course starting. And, and you also said it shares like random things that I like, like board games. Oh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead and do some yeah. picks and then I'll go. All right. Sure. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so I used to be very active in my university's board game club. So, like ten years ago, I got to know about all of the, the hot Euro games. My favorite mm-hmm. two easily are Tigris and Euphrates, and dominant species. Uh, Tigris and Euphrates is one where someone can be building a huge empire, but then in one turn, you take that empire and use it against them. It's a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, so, so more recently. So I'm a diehard fan of the Might and Magic series of, of games and the Heroes of Might and Magic series strategy spin-out. So in fact, my project worked on for Long of the Care to Admit is, a, is the first mod of Heroes of Might and Magic 2, which came out in 1996. I'm the first person to reverse engineer it and hack it and mod it, which is how I got the skills for the election hacking stuff I mentioned earlier. You can check that out at, at ironfi.sd, ironfist. Um, but recently, not not on my hands, a, a, a Polish company is, uh, is coming out with the Heroes of Might and Magic 3 board game. So I'm they just had a ultra-successful Kickstarter, and I'm super excited about that. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. Um, I am going to do a handful of picks or myself. Let me do the self-promotion stuff first. Um, we have Rails Remote Conf coming up. Uh, it's going to be at the beginning of February. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, and then we are also uh, chasing down um, book club ideas. So if you are if you want to join the book club, we're going to be wrapping up uh, clean architecture throughout this month. And then we're going to start a new book in February. So if you're uh, interested in being part of the book club, um, go to topendevs.com slash book club and you can sign up and then we will, um, we'll let you know how that is all uh, looking. As far as my picks, I always start with the board game. Um, I just want to call out real quick. So the Tigris and Euphrates game, um, I always uh, give you the weight on board game geek. Uh, it's two to four players. It says it's a 90 minute playtime and it's a 3.5 weight. So it's, it's a somewhat complicated game, but I like those ones. So, (laughs) um, the game I'm going to pick is forbidden sky. And if you've played like forbidden Island or forbidden, um, desert, 
this is just another variation. Um, it is two to five players. Um, with two players, we got through it. My wife and I did pretty fast. Um, last night, we actually won it for the first time. We played it like seven or eight times. Um, and what we did is we actually played with four, quote, players, but she ran two of them and I ran two of them. And anyway, it's it's kind of a difficult one to win. In fact, I found a uh, forum thread on Board Game Geek uh, talking about Forbidden Sky and basically saying, is it even possible to win it? And people talking about different approaches. Um, and so, yeah, we, we did win it. Um, I think what we basically had to do was um, in a lot of games, you can kind of take risks and the risks aren't that high, right? So you, you know, you stay out where you might get hurt and uh, take the risk. Uh, it turns out that every time we played, we'd eventually get to the point where we were willing to do that. And yeah, then, then one of the characters would die and, Forbidden Sky, it's kind of like Forbidden Desert or Forbidden Island where you're trying to get everybody off the out of the desert or off the the island. And in in those games, you're collecting artifacts. In this game, what you're doing is you're building a machine that will power a rocket that will get you off the platform in the sky. And so um, you wind up putting tiles together that allow you to place the components of your machine and then you wire them all together and take off. And so this time what we did is we effectively just, if there was a, if there was an option between like wiring something up or placing a tile we wanted versus moving back to a safer spot, we would move back to the safer spot. And that, that was effectively what we had to do to win. So we'll see how that goes with three players or two players. But uh, anyway, it was fun. Um, Forbidden Sky gives it a weight of 2.59. So it's slightly more complicated than a kind of a casual game. But, uh, you know, well within the pro, uh, the well within the realm of a game that you could pick up for your family and not be super um, thrown off by how complex it is, right? It's, it's not. It's not a game that I would say this is just heavy gamers would want to go play this one. So anyway, I'm going to pick that. And then, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I went through a whole bunch of personal stuff earlier this week, so I'm not as prepared on this as I usually am. So I think I'm just going to leave it with the board game. But um, yeah, hoping to see you all around at the different things that we've got going on. And I guess we'll wrap it here. And until next time, Max out.